Welcome to the 34 Circe Salon. We journey from the ancient world to the cosmos. Take the adventure. Take the adventure with us. With us. With us. With us. And welcome, everyone, to the 34 Circe Salon, the Parallax channel we are on. We are on this channel always exploring the ancient world, the cosmos, all the vast and sundry, strange, and maybe uncharted territories in our world. If you would, please be sure to go over on whatever podcast platform you're listening and rate us and like us and let us know what you think. My name is Sean Marlon Newcomb, and today's episode is the Classical Studies 101 series, and we're up to episode five. We are reviewing and looking at the Iliad, and our guide, as always, the one, the only, Dr. Gary Stickle. Hey, Gary. Hi, Sean. Good to talk with you today again. We have a little more silence here for the listeners. We're uh, making some tech transitions. So uh, while we do this, we're hearing more silence. You'll hear some stuff in the background, but uh, we're having a little more of a silent, almost um, reverent episode today. So as we enter the, the sacred space of the Iliad. So Gary, when we last left off, we had discussed chapter three of the Iliad. We had talked about um, the characters of Paris and Helen. We talked about the catalog of ships. We spoke of our beloved Amazons. And the upshot of that episode was the humanity with which Homer portrays all the characters in this great world. <laughs> so why don't we start there? Why don't we just uh, say something a little bit about Homer's humane portrayals of these people in the Iliad. Well, glad to, because, um, you know, I'm, I'm, a, an incredible fan of, of Homer. Um, and, uh, a, a friend of mine calls me a Homer phobic. <laughs> so, well, well, you, you wouldn't be a phobic though, right? Uh, Homer philiac, right? Homer philiac. I'm sorry. That's what he calls me. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> um, but at any rate, yes, Homer portrays his characters with with uh, great humanity and uh, drama like no one else. And that's why I, I say the Iliad is the greatest story of war ever written. Um, and chapter four basically uh, is his uh, explication of the conduct of the war. Mm-hmm. And a uh, brief synopsis of it in the, the Harvard uh, classical translation is um, how the uh, Trojan uh, Pandarus uh, wounds Menelaus. Menelaus, if you remember, is the king of Sparta, but also the husband of Helen, the one that Paris uh, abducts or takes away from Sparta back to Troy to become his lover. And, and uh, I think they get married to Troy, actually. Mm-hmm. So it's it's how the Trojan Pandarus wounds Menelaus by treachery. And uh, 
and how Agamemnon, who is the high high king, uh, who leads all the Greek kings like Odysseus and so on against the Trojans, how he exhorts his his uh, chief captains, as they put it, actually the, the other kings. Uh, to battle, how they go to battle. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so um, it begins, um, and I'm using Robert Fagel's translation because it's, uh, I, I think it's a it's a good one, if not totally, maybe as academic as some scholars would like, but I, I still like it. Right. <clears throat> so he calls the chapter four. The truce, uh, there was a truce going on between the Trojans and the Greeks. Uh, so he entitles the chapter, The Truce Erupts in War. And he starts off, Now aloft by the side of Zeus, the gods sat in council, conferring across Olympus's golden floor, as noble Hebe, she's a goddess, pours them rounds of nectar, the nectar of the gods, you know? Um they lifted her golden beakers, pledging each other warmly, gazing down on Troy. Apparently, they could see Troy from Mount Olympus. Uh-huh. Um, <clears throat> but abruptly, Zeus was set on inferioring his Hera, who's his wife and queen, queen of the gods, courting her fire with cunning mocking taunts. And so he says, quote, So those two goddesses there are Menelaus' best defense, Hera of Argos, and Boeotian Athena, guard of armies. Look at them sitting apart, watching the dueling. So they take their pleasure, but Aphrodite here, with her everlasting laughter, always stands by Paris. She saved his life. And so this is, he's talking about the duel between Menelaus and Paris that I mentioned last time. Right. And just as Menelaus is getting the best of uh, Paris, about ready to kill him, Aphrodite, who loves Paris, snatches him away and uh, puts him in the bedroom of, of Helen of Troy, you know, their, their bedroom at Troy. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> so um, Hera and Athena don't like that, and they mutter, as, as uh, Fagel says, they mutter between themselves, huddled together, plotting Troy's destruction. And then... Um, and so they're they're employing uh, <clears throat> Zeus to let the Greeks win. Can I, but I can think I, this uh, is a- interject here. What was Hera's business in this, in terms of her disdain for Troy? Um, I'm not, I'm not sure. Of, is it just because of the the judgment that? Yes. Okay. The judgment of of Paris, you know, where he chose Aphrodite over her and Athena. Okay, so so, <clears throat> so, so, you know, so the idea is it's being portrayed as their their vengeance for not being chosen is to smash is, is, is to destroy Troy. That's what they want to do. Sure. <clears throat> so they're exhorting Zeus, the king of the gods, to help them. But but get this, I think this is a very important important passage. Um, and so he's telling him line fifty of of. Uh, Chapter Book Four. They call them books because I think originally they were scrolls that the ancients called books. Uh, and he says, um, he says, no. Of all the cities under the sun and the starry skies, wherever men who walk the earth, earth have dwelled, I honor sacred Ilios 
meaning Troy, I honor sacred Ilios most with my immortal heart. So uh, <clears throat> I think that passage is very interesting because um, there, as I mentioned before, there's some even scholars who s- try to say that the Trojans weren't Greeks, that they were um, Hittites. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I think that passage indicates that, no, they were Greeks because uh, Homer's not going to have the king of the gods say that a foreign city was his favorite city. That's just not going to happen. Right. So, so the idea is that they are Greeks, they are Greek colonists, that Greeks had colonized that region. Is your, your theory on that? Yeah, because the, the whole coast of what is now Turkey uh, was inhabited by Greeks. You know, you got, you got Troy and you got Pergamon and, and so on, other uh, cities, uh, you know, along along the coast of uh, Turkey, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so uh, uh, Troy just happened to be the northernmost city, I, I, I believe, you know, but it was at a strategic point. It was right at the opening of the Bosphorus or uh, what the Greeks called the Hellespont which was a waterway between the Aegean Sea and the Black Sea. So it's very strategically located. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, <clears throat> that was, uh, you know, the uh, I think that was the, actually the reason for the Trojan War. It wasn't retrieving Helen. It was to destroy Troy because Troy was, I think, charging a fee for every trading ship that went through that area to the Greek colonies in, on the Black Sea. And so Agamemnon and the Greeks wanted to take Troy out so they wouldn't have to pay, you know, for access. Right. I think that was a real reason. But like I said, you had these um, <clears throat> Greek cities all along that coast. Um, another one was Ephesus, which uh, is a book in the Bible, Ephesians. It's right. based on St. Paul going to uh, Ephesus, a Greek city on that coast. Also, Ephesus was uh, known land, uh, known city that worshipped or center of worship of the great goddess and thought to also be a homeland of the Amazons. One of the cities founded by the Amazons is the uh, one of the other legends, but it's known for its being the great place of the worship of the goddess, particularly Artemis. So yes. give, the, you know, the great temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Right. <clears throat> so it was really something to behold, apparently. Um, and um, and then uh, after Zeus says that, um, and Herod the queen, her eyes wide, answered, quote, excellent, the three cities I love the most of all are Argos, Sparta, and Mycenae, and so, and so on, you know. Um, <clears throat> so anyhow, they're trying to get Zeus to uh, uh, let the Greeks win the war, and he's not quite ready to, to do that yet, you know. All right. And uh, so, um, uh, but what what they do is uh, Athena uh, <clears throat> gets this um, uh, Trojan archer, you know, meaning, uh, you know, he's, he's good with a bow and arrow, you know, and his name is Pandarus. Uh, <clears throat> she gets him to shoot at Menelaus. The, um, you know, the husband of, of Helen, like I said, and right, and uh, under under I guess you'd say under Agamemnon, his brother, he was the next important 
um, king, you know, of the Greeks against the Trojans. Right. <clears throat> so she has um, uh, Pandorus, uh, shoot at Menelaus. She mentions, which is interesting to me, um, and, and and this is how uh, uh, Beckles translates it. Then and there, Pandorus unstrapped his polished bow made of the horn of wild goat. And uh, he had shot in the chest one day a springy ibex clambering down a cliff. And then he uh, created his bow. The the horns on the head ran 16 hands in length. And I was trying to figure out how how Greek measured an ancient hand. I think it's the... uh, from the tip of the index finger to the crease, you know, right under your palm. Mm-hmm. And so it's 16 of those was the length of the bow. And then the boyer, uh, actually what they did is they covered wood, probably uh, either ash wood or maybe uh, uh, oak wood, uh, with the horns of the ibex. They could split open the horns and it's springy. You know, he mentioned springy. So it adds spring to the bow or greater impact. And it mentions it has golden, uh, uh, you know, where you string the bow, notch notch rings, he calls them. Golden notch rings at the tip. Uh, All of that is interesting to me because I had a bow created just like that to be the great bow of Odysseus from the Odyssey. And we'll get to the Odyssey at some point and describe that. Right. So anyhow... Uh, Athena has him shoot shoot the bow, and he wounds um, uh, Menelaus. You know she's she's disguised as one of the Trojans, so he, um, you know, Pandarus uh, agrees to it and shoots quote quote red haired Menelaus. I think it's interesting that the ancient Greeks uh, had different colored hair than apparently they do today. Today they're basically really dark haired, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but Helena Troy is blonde, you know, golden haired, and so are some of the goddesses. And uh, Aphrodite was golden haired, and but Menelaus had red hair, you know, red right. hair Menelaus, you know. Um, and um, <clears throat> and so anyhow, uh, with that wounding, um, that's the uh, end of the truce, and they go back to war again. Yeah, call to arms. Once they're, once one of the kings gets gets uh, uh, tempted to be whacked, as we put it in modern terms, right? Once one of the kings gets uh, shot at, it's pretty obvious they're going to say, forget this and let's go back and battle. Exactly. Okay. <clears throat> and then uh, later in the chapter, um, uh they're talking about he's talking about how the war was you know uh, was restarted and uh, and so this is the way uh, Fagels translates it um, that um, <clears throat> uh, he says Ares drove them now Ares is the god of the war uh, no, no, he he drove the uh, Ares was on the side of the Trojans. Okay. Okay. But in response to that, quote, fiery-eyed Athena. That's an epithet. Epithets are usually these two-word 
descriptors of people or things. So it's fiery, fiery eyed Athena mm-hmm. uh, drove the, uh, he translates Argives, meaning the Greeks. And so fiery eyed Athena drove the Greeks with, and these are all goddesses, terror, a goddess called terror. I mean, mm-hmm. the translation of the Greek word is terror. Another one is rout, like you, you know, you're, you're routing, you know, defeating your enemy. Mm-hmm. And the third, uh, these are minor goddesses, but nonetheless in the Greek pantheon, and relentless strife. And they're all capitalized because they're goddesses. Uh, they stormed with her. And uh, sister, and strife is the sister of man slaughtering Ares. That's an epithet for Ares. And um, <clears throat> really, it's a, really very, very vivid imagery, uh, just the use of the goddesses in that way, just the images of the three goddesses. Once again, the triple goddess, three goddesses. Exactly. Three, you know, oh, I, oh, yeah. and you know, I right. have this, this theory that they had Homer embedded a sacred symbolic number system, but which number three is, is one of the numbers. Right. Right. And um, <clears throat> so, um, and you know, you just, you know, it's just beautifully, um, Reddens, Ares, comrade in arms, strife, only a slight thing when she first rears her head, but her head soon hits the sky as he strides across the earth. Now strife hurled down the leveler hate, another uh, minor god, amidst both sides, wading into the onslaught, flooding men with pain. And then it goes on about the clash of the armies. At last the armies clashed at one strategic point. They slammed their shields together. Spear scraped spear with the grappling strength of the fighters armed in bronze. I think that's important because Homer was writing this during the Iron Age, and he keeps mentioning that uh, the armor and weapons were bronze. Mm-hmm. So clearly he's referring to the Bronze Age. That's a ec- excellent, excellent point. Uh, how often are scholars pointing out this particular thought, because remember we talked about how there was the question of whether this story were, had been based on historical fact, the, the belief that it hadn't for many centuries until Schliemann. And then right. we, we have that, and now we have a lot more evidence of strife during this era. So it's, a, it's good to note that there is that match in terms of the actual storytelling with the historical record. And he uh, he goes on. I mean, I think it's just gripping what this is. They're round shields. He says they have round shields at one point. Other times he says oblong shields, which is more like Bronze Age. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're round shields pounded. Boss, a boss is a, a protrusion on the shield. Um, it's a, you know, like a half globe shaped. Mm-hmm. And I think the idea is that it it, it helps to take uh, if, if somebody hits your shield with a sword, it helps to take the impact and, and not let your uh, shield be damaged. So round shields pounded, boss on welded boss. And the sound of struggle roared and rocked the earth. Screams of men and cries of triumph breaking in one breath. Fighters killing, fighters killed. And the ground streamed blood. I think that's the first time we have the reference of the, the, the ground ran red with blood. Mm-hmm. 
and he's describing the making comparisons here. Wildly, as two winter torrents raged down from the mountains, swirling into a valley, hurled their great waters together, flash floods from the well springs plunging down in the gorge, and miles away in the hills, a shepherd hears the thunder. So from the grinding armies broke the cries and the crash of war. I, I think that's just grand stuff. Beautiful. It is. It is. It's just beautiful writing. And again, another example of why this is the type of work that should be taught in schools. Uh, absolutely. And um, and then, you know, it just goes on here. Um, and Ajax. Ajax was the, the giant warrior of the Greeks, you know? Right, right. There's a, uh, he was, I think we mentioned there's a beautiful play. Uh, Sophocles, I think it was, right? Sophocles, yes, Ajax. Yes. Uh, incredible, incredible play about his his part in the Trojan War. All of these great heroes, there's not just so for the listeners, not just the Iliad and the Odyssey, but there were many, many, many great works written in the ancient world based on this particular story. You know, absolutely. So he's, he's saying here, and Ajax struck Anthemion's son, the hardy stripling Samosius, still unwed. His mother had borne him from Simwas's bank. Simwas is one of the rivers near Troy. When she trailed her parents down from the slopes of Ida. Now, Ida is Mount Ida. It's like the second Mount Olympus. And that's where Paris was from. He was, I mean, he was taken there to be raised and not killed. Mm-hmm. Of Mount Ida, and and also Zeus, and apparently the gods go there and they view Troy from Mount Ida. So to me, it's it's like a secondary Olympus. So she trailed her parents down the slopes of Ida to tend their flocks, and so they called him Samosius. But never would he repay his loving parents now for the gift of rearing. His life cut short so soon, brought down by the spear of the lion-hearted Ajax. Another epithet there, lion-hearted. At the first charge, he sliced the right nipple, clean through the shoulder, and went the brazen point, and down in the dust he fell. So in other words, you know, bit the dust. I mean, that's this is the origin of that. Right. Down in the dust he fell like a lithe black poplar tree, shot up tall and strong in the spreading marshy flats. The trunk trimmed so that its head a shock of branches. He, he goes on these long descriptions of uh, similes and so on. The chariot maker fills it with a shining, he says, iron axe. And, you know, so he, he, he uh, leaks in a little bit of the Iron Age here. But he's talking about the Bronze Age. As timber to bend his handsome chariot wheels, and there it lies, seizing by the river. So lay Anthemion's son Simwas, cut down by the giant royal Ajax. And then uh, he goes on here. Odysseus struck Democoon. Prime's bastard son down from Abydos, Prime's racing stables. That's where Abydos or Abydos uh, had, had the horses of Troy. Mm-hmm. Incense for the dead. Odysseus speared him right through one one temple of his head, you know, and the other punched out the sharp bronze point. Again, bronze, you know. Mm-hmm. And the dark came swirling thick across his eyes. Down he crashed. Armor clanging against his chest, and the Trojan front shrank back. Glorious Hector, too, shrank back as the, uh, as the uh, Greeks yelled and dragged away the corpses. 
pushing on, breaking on. But Lord God Apollo, you know, who favors the, the Trojans, gazing down from the heights of Pergamon, rose in outrage, crying down at the Trojans, Up and at them, you stallion-breaking Trojans! Never give up your lust for war against these Greeks. What are these bodies made of, rock or iron or to block your, your tearing bronze? Stab them, slice their flesh. Achilles, the son of lovely, sleek-haired Thetis, the goddess, the man's not even fighting. No, he wallows in his in all his heartsick fury at the ships. So he cried. From far on the city's heights, the awesome god Apollo. But Zeus's daughter Athena spurred on the Greeks. Athena, first in glory, third-born of the gods. Wherever she saw some slacker hanging back, as she hurled through the onset. And that's virtually the, the uh, end of the chapter, but not quite, but that, that's basically it. Well, this is a good, we're, we're at pretty much the end. This is probably a good place to stop. Uh, what I think was really interesting about that characterization is it almost, the way he describes the gods, it's like watching sports fans. It's like the image of a sports fan when you talk about Apollo, you know, uh, sort of exhorting the Trojans on, you know, sort of like you would when you watch a game. Come on, get back, hit them harder, that sort of thing. Yeah, they're sort of like coaches, you're right. Yeah, like coaches or even fans when you're watching on TV and you're next to someone who's a diehard fan. Of oh, yeah, who's, who's yelling at the screen. Yeah, yeah I hear you. And go get them, go get them, you know. Right. But really just, again, another example of the amazing creativity in this work. Why this work? would ever be questioned for its importance and its its quality, its gifts is beyond me. I mean so, the thing is as I as the passages I read today, there's violence in there, but war is violent. I mean it's not I don't uh, know why people are, are are raging against the Gary. I don't think that's it. There's violence in plenty of the things. And frankly, you to understand human history you have to you would have to let students read something about clashes where violence takes place. If you don't, you're going to live in a world where there will be people who might take advantage of them. Exactly. Behavior. So it's exactly. Because Homer is talking about uh, it, you know, it's, it's complex. I mean, on one hand, he's talking about glory because the ancient Greeks love to achieve glory by defeating their enemies in, in, in valiant battle and all that. But also when people get killed, it's de- definitely tragic, as Homer keeps saying. Sure. I mean, it's an absolutely very human. It's not a bloodthirsty work. It's a humane work. Absolutely. A humane work about what really happens in the world. And, that. and with that, let us stop here praising Homer. I want to thank uh, Dr. Gary Stickle. Thank you, thank Gary, you. as always. Thank you. It's been great. Always enjoy it. Joining us. And thank you all for listening. This has been the 34 Circe Salon, the Parallax Channel, our series on classical studies, the Iliad. We were studying Chapter 4 today. We'll be back with more. Thank you for listening. I'm Sean Marlon Newcomb. Take care.